683 have cast their votes, 621 in favor, 49 against, 13 abstentions. Hello, it's Brexit Day, so you're welcome to Where Else? Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mungoin, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. So it will finally happen. Friday night at 11pm UK time, midnight Central European time, the UK will leave the European Union after nearly 47 years of membership. I'll be assessing the mood here in London whether it's jubilation or sadness. And we'll be checking in with the sentiment in Brussels, where the local authorities have shipped in a London taxi, a red telephone box, to help the citizens of the Belgian capital to cope with the new reality. And we'll be looking at what happens next as both sides draw breath and prepare for the upcoming trade negotiations. But first to you, Sean, on on, on a line that sounds semi-detached appropriately enough. What's the plan for today? How does it unfold What's the choreography for the last, what are we now as we record, to, uh, 11 ten hours? Ten hours, yeah. Yeah, ten a bit hours. Right, well, the, the, the choreography, the official choreography, uh, and it's important to distinguish between the official and the unofficial, the official choreography is really low-key, play it down, don't go big on this, no bonging of Big Ben uh, for a start, no fireworks, uh, no massed bands uh, or any of that sort of thing. Um, the best you can hope for is uh, a pre-recorded video address from Boris Johnson at 10 o'clock tonight. Um, there will also be a countdown clock projected onto the black wall of uh, number 10 Downing Street between 10 and 11 uh, to count down those minutes uh, to the end. Right now, uh, the cabinet are meeting where else but Sunderland, uh, the first constituency to declare uh, it's no vote or it's, it's vote to leave uh, in the referendum back in 2016. Uh, so the cabinet have gone up there to uh, symbolically uh, mark what they think is going to be a, uh, what they expect or hope to be uh, a change in the direction of politics uh, here in the United Kingdom. And that's pretty much it for the uh, official um, celebrations. A lot of the visuals, though, are going to be produced by the unofficial uh, celebrations and that's uh, an event uh, being organised by the Brexit party. A drink-free event. So they've substituted the European Union for the drink-free demanding nanny state of the UK. Well, it's the nanny state of Westminster City Council. I know them well. Um, Yes, they keep the streets uh, around this uh, borough drink-free and uh, lots of uh, big events tend to happen down this way. Um, So people who do want to drink have to do it indoors, be that in the Red Lion pub uh, or uh, the Houses of Parliament uh, themselves, which have a number of bars uh, to keep members and visitors uh, happy and lubricated. Uh, But out on the streets, no, uh, there won't be any drink. There will be a pub landlord there, the um, bloke who runs Weatherspoons pubs, uh, is billed as one of the speakers at this rally, along with um, Anne Widdicombe, uh, now former MEP of the Brexit Party, uh, and Nigel Farage, who is, of course, the star speaker at this event, uh, because it's really the Nigel show. He's the guy who has been the face of uh, Brexit, really, for the past 20 years. Are you going and, down to uh, check it out? 
I will be going down to check it out, of course, um, because there's not much else happening around here, and uh, television is a show-and-tell business. So uh, we will be going down to, to check out what's happening there. We'll probably have a look in as well uh, across the river at County Hall, um, where the big wheel, the London Eye, uh, is now the, the dominant uh, feature on the landscape. Um, there's been an appeal for uh, Remain voters or people who are sad uh, about the prospects of Britain, well, not the prospects, the actuality of Britain leaving the European Union. Um, they are asked to gather down there and switch on the lights of their mobile phones uh, in that sort of theatre, um, stadium rock manner uh, of, of these nice. days uh, to shine a light and keep a light on for Brexit. And that theme of keeping the light on uh, is something else that's uh, going around. Um, there was an article uh, in the Irish Times by former um, Irish ambassador to London and the EU, Bobby McDonough, saying about how he would be lighting a candle um, for Britain leaving the European Union. And this idea of the candle seems to have caught on uh, in various towns and places around here. People are going on social media saying they're going to light candles. And indeed, there's going to be a, a full-on candlelit vigil uh, up in Edinburgh, which I think is the really interesting place to be uh, today on Brexit Day. Uh, because as we know, uh, the Scots voted overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union, and uh, the Scots, Scottish National Party uh, is now uh, effectively at political war uh, in Westminster with the government, the Conservative Party government, over the issue of Brexit uh, as the um, key issue to catalyse its long-term campaign objective of Scottish independence. And an opinion uh, poll showing recently a, a narrow squeak majority, of course, indications, suggestions, only a snapshot in time, all the usual caveats that go with that to say that uh, independence is, is a nose ahead in Scotland. Indeed, you know, usual caveats apply with all opinion polls. Uh, but then again, the idea of Britain leaving the European Union, go back 30, 40 years, you wouldn't have found many takers for that. Over time, these things build up. Uh, over time, support for the Scottish National Party has built up to the extent that they are now the dominant party in Scottish politics. They've had four elections in a row uh, where they've uh, either built to or consolidated their dominance in Scotland. Another one uh, up there uh, might well be the trigger point for calling a referendum. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, under pressure from within her own party to push ahead, try and do a Catalonia-type uh, run at a referendum, holding back from that uh, for the moment. Right. Uh, but it is absolutely a live issue up there. There's going to be a candlelit vigil tonight uh, at uh, Holyrood uh, at the Parliament uh, and try and mark the uh, Brexit day in a sombre, uh, quiet way. Uh, it'll be quite the contrast to what will be going on down the road here uh, on Parliament Square. Uh, and there will also be um, keeping the EU flag flying outside the Scottish Parliament. It flies there, unlike the uh, UK Parliament here in Westminster. Uh, it was expected that it would be taken down. The parliamentary official said, yeah, it's the law of the land, we've got to take it down. There was a vote in the Scottish Parliament this week that said, no, we're going to keep flying the EU flag here on our building um, to mark the fact that we actually want to be in the EU and are being pulled out against our will. So this is a big issue right. in Scotland uh, and, and it's MEPs, going to continue to be a big issue. There are MEPs, Alan Smith, foremost amongst them in the European Parliament, uh, urging those still in the European Parliament and indeed the European institutions to keep a light on for them. Meanwhile, on this island, border communities against Brexit are holding 
uh, protests to mark the occasion of the UK leaving the European Union up around the border. And Arlene Foster is not celebrating Brexit in the UK. Arlene Foster is appearing on The Late Late Show tonight because she feels it's important to talk to people in Ireland. So that's how she's marking uh, Brexit. So it should be interesting to see how that interview pans out. Tony, you'll be finding out how Brexit has been felt. You're doing an interview with Ursula von der Leyen later today. Yeah, so the uh, institutions uh, column have been uh, trying to calibrate their response to what's been happening this week. So it's been very carefully organised and, and choreographed. We, we had a joint statement this morning, uh, Friday morning, from Charles Michel, the President of the European Council, David Sassoli, who's the President of the European Parliament, uh, and Ursula von der Leyen herself uh, giving their uh, feelings on the moment uh, The general pitch is that this is a sad moment for the EU, but we respect the result of the referendum and we will miss all of those British citizens and officials and uh, politicians who have done so much as they would say it to develop and build the European Union and uh, we still love you, we'll miss you, but uh, you know we, we, uh, we will wake up tomorrow morning, it'll be a new day and we'll have to build a new relationship uh, with the UK. So that's really the tenor of the official response from the institutions. But I have to say that elsewhere there's been a very interesting uh, take on this, um, notably by the civic authorities in Brussels, um, so that, if you like, is you know somewhat detached from the EU quarter, the EU bubble around uh, the Schuman roundabout, as we call it. Um, you had the mayor of Brussels hosted a party for uh, British officials who've been working in the institutions down in the Grand Place. Uh, any visitors to Brussels will know that's the... Um, the you know, place the, the where the Baroque. King of Spain pub is, to give it an Irish pub geography. <laughs> yeah, well, there are many pubs there and it's a great place to sit and watch the world go by uh, and and have uh, any number of uh, fairly robust Belgian beers. But um, this was a an event organised by the civic authorities to, to, to just mark the a moment and to appreciate the presence of British people in Brussels who've, you know, they've, they've built lives here, they've had families here, there's a British school and they've really shaped the city. Like, they're, you know, everywhere you go in, in Brussels, uh, it, it's kind of a trilingual city. You've got French and Dutch, obviously, but English is spoken everywhere um, and there are lots of, you know, Irish pubs uh, to, to cater for. Uh, English um, tastes and appetites and so on, but you know there is, there is an, an Anglophile flavour to Brussels that you just don't get anywhere else, and that's because of the British presence in the European institutions, and that was marked by the by the Mayor of Brussels. They had a a concert as well um, on the Grand Place uh, in, involving. Uh, quote, Cayley music and other British forms of music. Uh, and of course, before people splutter into their Guinness, that, that is acknowledging, of course, that uh, Scottish music uh, is uh, Cayley music as well. Uh, and uh, Scotland is still part of the UK, despite what uh, Sean was sketching for us there. Um, they also beamed the Union Jack onto the buildings of the Grand Place. And the, uh, the, the transport system in Brussels also did a very cute social media vi- uh, video showing uh, a kind of a scrolling effect of the map of Brussels uh, transport system and gently highlighting all of the uh, stops that have an English connection like uh, Montgomery, like uh, England, like Churchill, um, just reflecting the legacy of the British 
uh, and English presence in Europe uh, and Brussels. And a lot of that, a lot of those stops, of course, were, were named after the Second World War when Britain was seen as one of the liberators of uh, of Belgium. So uh, I think, you know, that it's important to acknowledge that link that British, uh, that the Belgian authorities here have, have been trying to celebrate and, and to mark, but overall a f- fairly bittersweet uh, moment. We can he- actually hear from Anthony Hook, who is a Liberal Democrat MEP who got elected back in May in, in those very strange European elections. He's uh, an MEP for the south of England. And I asked him what his thoughts and, and emotions were uh, on Wednesday of this week when the European Parliament voted to ratify the withdrawal agreement. Anthony, it's a, it's a big week uh, for British MEPs, uh, a lot of mixed emotions. But what are your own emotions on, on what's happening this week? I feel great pain and sadness for my country. I think that Brexit is a mistake that's going to damage the life chances, particularly of our young people. But I'm warmed up by the friendship and affinity of so many colleagues, and I feel hope that we'll return in in future. You think that the future could be a scenario of Britain rejoining, maybe depending on how the trade negotiations go and the future relationship negotiations? I think that the the benefits of membership are so strong and particularly when you see that support was clearly in the majority among working age people and stronger and stronger the younger you got that that's the way it would look like things would go but of course the future is always very unpredictable clearly rejoining is off the table as long as we have Boris Johnson which is probably for five years something I would like to see the next government of whatever political party that is do is bring forward an independent review of what the effects of Brexit have been by then we'll have five years of experience to see what benefits or damage there has been I think we should have a citizens convention further on in this decade which we're not used to having in the UK you you have them in Ireland and I believe they inform the referendum experience quite well let's bring together a panel of members of the public to hear from experts, hear from whoever they want to hear from to make recommendations about our future relationship with Europe. And I certainly think a a different government could foster public debate that could lead to us choosing to rejoin. Um, In in your conversations with colleagues this week, have you got a sense of what people here will miss about British MEPs, what what qualities or characters that they, characteristics they bring to the table and what, what people will miss? I think they'll miss us uh, just as they would any member state. I think we've been here for a very long time and over the decades British politicians have had a really big impact. I'm from Kent and Lord Cokefield was from my part of the country. He was uh, the trade commissioner in the 80s. He set up the single market. That's arguably the most important, one of the most important things in the history of the European Union. And I think they'll miss the contribution that we we could have had. Do you get the impression that uh the rest of the EU now when we get into the trade negotiations will will be very tough or do you think there's a kind of a softening of attitudes on how um, hard line Europe should be in defending its interests? Well in any political negotiations whether domestic or international each party its, its job is to advance the interests of the people they represent so the leaders of the European Union whether they're prime ministers of member states or, or here in Brussels their job is to advance the interests of their constituents, just as British politicians' job is to advance our interests. But of course, it's a uh, negotiation between 27 and 1. And I think any idea that Brexiters have that they can still have their cake and eat it, that we can have everything 
they can have everything they want and nothing they don't want is wholly unrealistic, as we've already seen through the Brexit process, because it's already cost our economy roughly the same in four years as to what we've paid into the European Union over 47. It's a nonsense. So that was Anthony Hook, MEP, talking to me in the European Parliament on Wednesday. Of course, the the absence of British MEPs and British ministers coming to council meetings here in Brussels uh, and a British minister, uh, commissioner, that's really going to be the only big tangible difference between what's happening today, Friday lunchtime, and from tomorrow onwards, because of course there will be the transition period, which means nothing will will change. Uh, apart from that, um, all of the EU laws will still apply in the UK. There will still be free movement of people, um, uh, and uh, there will still be frictionless trade for British businesses uh, exporting to the single market. All of that will stay as is until December 31st. But it does um, increase the workload on the Irish diplomatic staff there, doesn't it? Because to some degree, having another Anglophone and to some degree like-minded country in the European Union coming from a common law system, scrutinising the various proposals knocking around the European institutions, it was handy to have a large British presence there to get their take on it, to feed into how Ireland might deal with these things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been one of the truisms of Brexit, this idea that Ireland had, to a large extent, depended on the presence of uh, the United Kingdom at the table in Brussels at council meetings and so on, in key areas such as taxation, such as liberalising services, liberalising the single market, because we uh, spoke the same language, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, to you know outward-looking trading countries uh, who were sometimes you know up against perhaps more protectionist instincts uh, in the, in other member states, France and Germany come to mind there. Um, and Britain was always very well prepared in these council meetings, uh, did a lot of research, had good heft, well respected, of course, a big diplomatic um, service and influence, very articulate ministers coming to, to the table. Uh, all of that is going to be gone and Ireland is has been having to try and patch over that gap um, you know we've been building new uh, rapports and relationships with uh, people like the Dutch the Nordic countries Denmark uh, the, the Baltic countries people who would be of a like mind when it comes to free trade and, and liberalizing the single market but of course it's not going to completely offset uh, Britain's departure so this is going to be a somewhat uneasy time I think for Ireland in, in the coming years. Sean, over in, in Britain, one of the things, obviously, that the, the uh, period of transition means that everything continues as normal. But has there been any economic impact? There, I notice on social media commentary, people triumphantly saying, where is Project Fear's big disaster now? Obviously, that wasn't going to happen because there was a transition period. But is there any marked impact of Brexit? Have the markets taken note of it in any way, for good or for ill? Oh, for sure. I mean, the big marked impact, the economic impact came with the devaluation of sterling, one of the biggest devaluations ever in the, the days immediately after the vote. And that did what a big devaluation is supposed to do, which is act as a shock absorber uh, for the economy. So to some extent, uh, people have been cushioned, haven't really noticed uh, the slowdown in the British economy. But the bean counters who follow these kind of things closely have noticed it and uh, we got a statement uh, to that effect from the Bank of England uh, yesterday, Thursday, when they uh, met for their regular interest rate uh, announcement. There'd been quite a lot of expectation that they would cut interest rates 
by a quarter of a percentage point to try and uh, boost up uh, the economy at this time. Uh, the, all the economic indicators uh, were pointing to a situation where it was quite likely that an interest rate cut would be called for. Uh, some of the people on that committee were arguing publicly for a cut. Uh, they decided not to cut it because it looks like they want to wait and see uh, what the Chancellor will do on the fiscal side to try and push money into the economy um, before you get around to any kind of monetary policy, um, cutting interest rates to, to try and uh, ease the flow of, of uh, the economy. But the point they're making is that in the final quarter of 2019, during that electoral period, uh, the British economy didn't grow. There was flatlining, zero growth. Um, not a good position to be starting off uh, your uh, great new time as global Britain. And the other problem is the global economy is not doing well at all. The, the growth uh, in the international economy is uh, at the lowest level it's been for a decade. Uh, and if you are trying to be uh, the global uh, seller, uh, selling into a global economy, it really doesn't help if the global economy isn't doing terribly well either. So it's not a fantastic time to be uh, uh casting any kind of uncertainty over your relationship with your biggest trading partner, uh, which is what's happening now with Brexit. And of course, tonight doesn't mean uh, anything in terms of uh, whether you're a business or not. Yes, there's a little bit more uh, political clarity because of the election, and that has helped to steady nerves here. And there have been some signs of little bits of pickup uh, in uh, some investment in the economy and things like house prices. Uh, we've seen a fairly sharp jump in house prices over the past month, uh, particularly down here in London, where they've been really on the floor for the past couple of years. But that's probably not enough to, to uh, call it any kind of a, an economic rebound or bounce. And the um, central bank interest rate setter certainly didn't think it was uh, time now to make a decision one way or the other. They're going to uh, leave it, but the implications of their report suggest that uh, there will be an interest rate cut. It'll probably be necessary to try and support the UK economy, but it's really, really finely poised at the moment, and it could be something, nothing to do with Brexit that might uh, trigger a worsening of the situation, and the one that they're pointing to is the coronavirus currently spreading out of China. We've had our first confirmed cases today here in the UK. Uh, that's the type of thing that does have a depressing effect on international trade and um, has knock-on effects uh, for economies all around the world. So watch that space. Okay. It's things that you probably never think of that have these kind of impacts. The other thing to be said uh, has been right at the start, uh, even before the, the Brexit referendum happened, uh, people were writing about um, a lack of investment because of uncertainty over what would happen. Uh, I know this for a fact because I was one of those people writing things saying there's going to be a shortage of investment in Britain. Bank of England, very clear on that. There hasn't been investment for the last uh, three and a half years. The governor said they used to be the biggest investor, uh, amount of investment in a G7 economy. Uh, they've now gone to the bottom of the investment list in the G7 economies over the past three years. And that is having a cumulative and knock-on effect on the economy that even if they got all these magic trade deals, because there hasn't been investment over the past few years, it sets a kind of a speed limit on how fast the economy can grow. So over the medium term, it's not going to grow as fast as it could have grown if there had been constant investment over the past three and a half years. So Brexit has undoubtedly had an economic effect in Britain. Most people probably haven't felt it. 
because you haven't seen any uh, catastrophic rise in unemployment or things of that nature. Uh, but under the hood of the British economy, uh, it hasn't been fantastic. And that, of course, is having uh, overspill effects into the Irish economy. We had a, a survey from the Institute of Directors in Ireland this week uh, with 89% of business leaders there saying that they think Brexit will have a negative economy uh, on the Irish, uh, negative impact on the Irish economy uh, in the short term. And we also... That's slightly, that's slightly down from 96% in Q3 when the uncertainty was at its height, but still uh, an enormous uh, figure. And uh, the three things that are going to knock the economy in Ireland will be the effects of Brexit, um, political and economic uncertainty, and uh, shortages of uh, labour force in Ireland. But and we also had a, an admission by Michael Gove that there would be friction, trade friction, between the UK and the EU, something that wasn't really been talked about heretofore. Now, friction, and a certain amount of it, is the price of sovereignty, it seems, that we've heard we've heard similar sentiment recently enough on this podcast from the Brexit party saying that yeah that's the price you pay for full sovereignty and it's a price worth paying but not something we've heard in the recent past from the conservative party but Michael Gove is saying it now yeah and and Michael Gove is is uh starting to front up on uh, quite a few things. One of the other things he said uh, in that interview was that British politicians will have no hiding place now. They won't be able to blame the EU when things go wrong. Uh, But yeah, the uh, assumption of um, frictions, trade frictions, uh, again, the Bank of England in their report this week, uh, one of the factors that they have put into their economic forecasting uh, is that there will be more frictions on uh, trade uh, which they say will weigh on trade flows to a greater extent over 2021 than was previously expected. So there has been this change, uh, this inflection in the approach of the British government. The nature of Brexit did get harder in the aftermath of the British election. The expectation now is that there will be more friction that's already been built into those Bank of England economic models. And uh, Mr. Gove is now making it more expli- uh, explicit as they go into the next phase of Brexit. Uh, which is the trade discussions. Okay, Tony, the preparations for those trade discussions, a mandate to be agreed in the European Union by the 25th of February. What's the choreography around that now? Because the European Union has liked to set the structure of negotiations, the scheduling of negotiations and the pace of negotiations. How's that going? That's being repeated, Colm, in preparation for the trade negotiations. So the choreography is as follows. On Monday, the uh, European Commission, the College of Commissioners, as they're called, will adopt the draft negotiating mandate. uh, And that means that uh, they have spent something like 50 hours of uh, working with member states through very detailed seminars uh, going through all of the issues that the future relationship will entail. So not just the free trade agreement, but uh, security, defence, judicial and police cooperation, cyber security, energy, transport, you name it, everything that will link uh, the European Union and its its nearest neighbour, um, the, the United Kingdom. Um, and as a result of those seminars and all that detailed work, the Commission uh, has been drawing up its draft mandate for the negotiations. That in turn then will kind of go back to the capitals and they will tweak it here and there and then adopt it formally. 
um, on the uh, 25th of February. And as Phil Hogan uh, said to me during the week in an interview, um, you know, we'll be ready to go the next day. And I don't know if that means the trade negotiations will actually start on the 26th. Um, I think this month, uh, well, rather throughout February, both sides will be scoping out the the ground rules of the negotiations. You know where they'll take place because this is going to be different um, from the divorce negotiations because it's a free trade agreement. Uh, that means you, you you tend to alternate uh, between one capital and, and, and the other. Um, it's not going to be a roadshow in the UK necessarily, but you know there will be uh, negotiating rounds in London uh, and then in Brussels. Phil Hogan was saying that he reckons there's only about five rounds of negotiation available uh, before the UK has to take a decision in July as to whether or not they extend the transition period or not. Of course, Boris Johnson, as we've heard before, has sworn he won't do that. Uh, but it, it, things are going to be very tight. Roughly speaking, we're looking at uh, negotiating around every three weeks. Um, yeah, so that doesn't give people uh, a lot of time. Uh, just there's, a week of, and, there's a week of preparation, a week of negotiation, and then a week of debrief, and then that, that pattern rolls on. Is that is that the way it works? Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of how things worked with the... Um, with the divorce negotiations, you had the officials would come to Brussels. They would do their uh, their business uh, across the table. Then the European Commission would then go and brief member states uh, in detail through what's called the working party. So that process is going to be repeated, but it'll be more intense and more involved evolved, involved because member states are going to have their own national and, experts. And, and in, how much? Room. How much will we know about that, Tony? Because going back to the abortive transatlantic trade and investment partnership, also known as TTIP, the European Ombudsman intervened and called for a greater transparency. There was a bit of to and fro in between the Ombudsman and the Commission over that. And ultimately, there was a reading room set up so people could see what the state of play was with the negotiations. On the Brexit side of things, when things got hot and heavy, things went into the tunnel, this supposedly leak-free zone where people could do their intense negotiations. Do we have any idea how transparency will be brought to these negotiations, how much of them will be done in the tunnel, or will we be reliant on briefings from either side slipping out? I think probably the, the latter column, uh, there's no talk around here of a tunnel uh, situation. I mean, I think that was a, a very particular set of circumstances um, where you had to get something over the line uh, in, in a desperately short time. I mean, obviously, we could well be looking at that uh, in the latter half of this year, but... Um, you know, there is a difference between the TTIP negotiations and, and the Brexit negotiations. There's just, there's just so much more interest. Um, there will be a lot more people involved in terms of member states. And, you know, we'll have this working party uh, system where, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a debrief, as you say, after each round of negotiations. And those tend to be fairly leaky affairs. Um, and we'll all be doing our best, obviously, as journalists to, to, to inform people as to what's going on. Um, but again, all that sort of side of things has to be uh, has to be worked out by by the the commission and as i say they're going to be doing some scoping work before the 25th of february um to to figure out how this is all managed but i mean just to get into the weeds a little bit on the commission's approach here um i mean everything the eu does is needs a legal basis uh, that that's the nature of the project it's it's highly treaty underwritten and treaty bound so what they've done is they have gone for what's called Article 217, which is basically the legal basis where you, where you, whereby you have uh, an association agreement. So 
we, we think of an association agreement is it's kind of like a free trade agreement plus it's it's free trade it's all of the other areas of cooperation there's one between the eu and ukraine um it, it's a it's a big all-encompassing uh, agreement between both sides that takes in everything not not just trade now the reason why the eu is going to go for that is that um if you have a single legal base for everything you do then it is easier for the eu to imprint its objectives right across the board so what do i mean by that it means that the eu wants what is called the level playing field we've talked about that before it wants to make sure that britain is not going to undercut the eu in key sectors and it wants a very robust governance what does that mean it means that they want a dispute settlement system that is quick that has teeth and that doesn't drag on for years uh, and and meanwhile, a particular sector of the European economy gets undercut by the UK. That's basically uh, the EU's fear in these negotiations. And so the reason they've gone for one single uh, article, Article 217, means that they can do all of that with one single legal basis so that if they're saying, right, these are the rules that make sure we can't get undercut by the UK, that means those rules will go across the board, whether you're talking about trade, whether you're talking about cyber security, uh, defence, fisheries, of course, a really sensitive area. Um, and you're also going to have the same governance element to that. So that no matter what the area of cooperation is, uh, the EU, if it feels it's being unfairly uh, undercut or there's unfair competition, it can reach for the um, trade dispute mechanisms or the dispute mechanism that they agree. And uh, according to the EU, that, that settlement mechanism, that uh, referee, if you like, has to has to be quick, it has to be re- robust, and it has to have teeth. Sean, what's what's your sense of what's happening then on the other side of it? Because we've had people like uh, Sir Ivan Rogers, who we've heard from before in his many lectures and articles, saying that the EU's genius with regard to dictating the pace and structure of talks and the formalities of these negotiations has been to its great advantage. As Do you hear any rumblings on the UK side of things that it won't be the same this time, or there'll be an attempt to impose a UK structure on the negotiations, and, and how might they go about that? Well, there'll certainly be an attempt, because they are very well aware of the kind of criticisms that uh, Sir Ivan uh, has uh, made, and a number of other people have made, uh, including some of the uh, leading Brexiters, uh, who uh, have kept up their barrage of criticism, not just of the uh, European Union and not just of the Westminster Parliament, but also of their own government and Westminster system and its whole conduct uh, of the talks. And they uh, are of the view that one of Britain's fundamental mistakes was allowing the EU to dictate uh, the pace of the uh, talks and what they covered. But of course, that was all baked into Article 50 anyway, uh, and was always intended to be uh, done in that way. Uh, If you are now negotiating as a third country, as Britain will be in a few hours' time, then that does give them a bit more uh, latitude and freedom to try and uh, push in. But as Tony says, uh, the EU is very, very well used to doing these kind of negotiations. It has a pretty well-oiled machine, a pretty chunky, uh, well-versed bureaucracy uh, for trade negotiations and indeed negotiations across the whole spectrum of relationships. Uh, And these kind of association agreements Uh, which it has done with a number of other countries uh, and then uh, partnership agreements with regions uh, to the east and south uh, of uh, 
uh, the European Union, it does take quite a strategic view of how it handles things, uh, and it uh, does try to encompass as many areas as possible in these uh, negotiations because of that ease of management that Tony was talking about, because of the legal basis uh, that that is done on. Now, the British system isn't like that. Uh, it runs in a different way, so it's harder to really assess what their uh, strategic uh, method is going to be in trying to do these uh, negotiations with the European Union. Um, Sir David Frost, who's going to be Boris Johnson's uh, envoy for these talks, is going to be based in the Cabinet Office, apparently with a small cell of uh, people, about 40, uh, we understand, in the staff, uh, to do the uh, negotiations and be close to, physically, uh, close to the Prime Minister uh, and try and that way be nimble uh, and able to jump around. And being nimble, of course, is another way of saying we're small and uh, the EU is big. They're hoping that the the big um, machine will be slower and a bit more lumbering. But, you know, uh, it's Six Nations rugby time, uh, which is, of course, a reminder that when a small light back runs into uh, one or two really big uh, forwards, uh, the small guy comes off worst. And that may well be the case in these talks as well. You, you know, you've got to be lucky as well as being nimble. And uh, luck is going to play a certain role in this, um, as will tone, I think, um, and how Britain pitches itself into these talks. Right now, both of them are kind of shaping up a bit like boxers or MMA people before the big bout, trash talking each other to a certain extent. Yeah, well, just uh, how, how, how a lot has, of training and preparation yeah, in the background as well. How, how has said perceived trash talking gone down? Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach here, did an interview with BBC's political editor. Laura Koonsberg, in which he emphasised the strength of the European hand in this. Did those comments cause any stirs over in, in the UK? A small stir in the usual places. The people who like to be outraged by uppity patties um, duly wrote their articles for the Daily Express or Daily Mail. Uh, really didn't get much traction uh, at all. Neither the uh, input from the T-shirt nor the, the blowback. Uh, from the the usual suspects, right. uh, I guess it's kind of Ireland's fate uh, I, I to should... be pretty much ignored most of the time anyway over here in Britain. Um, despite being the UK's fifth biggest trading partner, um, they they don't know that fact for a start, and um, they don't pay much attention to the country next door. But they are convinced that uh, they can do all kinds of amazing trade with countries on the far side of the planet of which they know little. Right. Well, one Irish person's comments to it did cause a stir, but this time on this side of the water was the European Trade Commissioner, Phil Hogan, who was warning about how Brexit was only entering into the most serious stage of its development. Of course, as a commissioner, he's obviously not supposed to get involved in any domestic politics. Him being a member uh, of Fine Gael and the European People's Party, it was seen as, his remarks were seen as backing up Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and Foreign Minister Simon Coveney's view that Brexit should really be front and centre of the election agenda and he he said not that he wasn't endorsing the government that he was just emphasising the point that Brexit is important and that he was sure any government would be competent in dealing with Brexit and he, he said he had never suggested otherwise despite the howls of outrage from the leader of the largest opposition party Fianna Fáil in the form of Micheál Martin. Tony, it sounds like things are in lockdown in Brussels at the moment in preparation for this February 25th agreement of the mandate. Is that really what's 
absorbing their energies as far as Brexit's concerned, because there are other things obviously on their agenda, but on the Brexit side of things, is that really what's going to consume their attention uh, between now and next month? Yes, but I think, uh, to be honest, Colin, I think a lot of the, the work on the, the the mandate for these negotiations has been done um, because, you know, e- even before Theresa May triggered Article 50, the EU had clearly set out its principles that any future relationship will be based on rights and responsibilities and the UK can't get the access it has now to the single market unless it signs up to the rules of the single market. And that's been a theme that has been repeated and it's obviously very politically charged. But, you know, right through the past three years, uh, even though a lot of the focus and energy was on the divorce, member states were quietly prepping uh, the future relationship uh, as part of the whole process. They've they've had seminars back in uh, the early part of 2018. And of course, those seminars were revived uh, in the past month. Uh, and a lot of that work has been done. Now, I think over the next few weeks, the member states will look exactly at the, at the mandate and see where the cursor should lie, how strict should the EU be in terms of the level playing field issue, should they cut the UK some slack here and there in certain sectors? I think that's what, they, what they'll be looking at. And then they'll hand the mandate back to the European Commission on the uh, 25th of February. But just, I think, to explain to people why the level playing field issue is so important and what it's really about. I mean, obviously, in one sense, it's, it's about the EU saying uh, we don't want to be uh, undercut by a UK that lowers its standards uh, and uh, you know has a kind of Singapore on Thames approach, which will uh, you know put European companies out of business. The UK say, uh, hang on a second, we're not uh, going to do that. What made you think we'd lower our standards? Uh, we have higher standards than the EU in certain uh, sectors. But the, the 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 key point to remember here is that the EU is offering the UK a zero tariff, zero quota free trade agreement. They haven't offered that to anybody else in the world. Uh, there, there is no such free trade agreement that is uh, so uh, open and generous. Now, in the normal course of events in a free trade agreement, if the EU feels that they're being undercut, if there's dumping, if they have, for example, uh, textiles coming in from a country uh, somewhere in the world and that company is exploiting uh, labour, it's polluting the environment, it's using too much water and so on, the response the EU uh, reserves the right to use is it can put tariffs on those textiles and te- tariffs on textiles are very high. Uh, so that's the sort of defence instrument that the EU has in a normal EFT free trade agreement. Because they're going into this free trade negotiation with the EU, with the UK, having conceded from the outset that there's going to be zero tariffs, then they can't use that as a defence mechanism if there is undercutting somewhere down the line. So that's why for the EU, the level playing field, those promises that the UK is not going to lower their right. standards, that that is kind of an absolute prerequisite. It's, it's and, shades uh, of the backstop, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's It's legal certainty that... The EU is not going to be undercut. Now, of course, the UK can promise until the cows come home that they're not going to lower their standards in order to get a trading advantage. But, you know, a, a verbal promise is not really going to cut it in the in the rough and tumble of international trade treaties. So the EU is going to want to have that nailed down and that promise there. Now, of course, um, you know, th- there will be 
um, areas where the EU wants to go further, like in fisheries, for example, a basic level playing field is not going to work at work uh, either because just say, for example, the UK starts to use bigger trawlers to catch more fish. Uh, they, they stop the discards um, uh, policy that the EU has, that they use certain kind of nets. Those are all areas that are going to give the UK an advantage over European fleets who are going to be fishing in the same waters. So you can see where at a, at a kind of a technical kind of granular level, this level playing field theme is going to cut in at every point along the way. So I think this is the big issue to watch uh, in these negotiations. Where are we at, Sean? Take it up for where we are next week. Well, I mean, the Brexit, some people will have the, the old hangover on uh, Saturday morning, but for most people, they won't notice any difference. But in political terms, uh, it's a new week begins on Monday and we're told to expect a big speech from Boris Johnson on uh, trade policy uh, and uh, where they want to go in terms of the strategy of these negotiations uh, with the European Union and others, which will, of course, raise questions about uh, just how much capacity the British uh, civil service has to deal with multiple trade talks all going on at the same time. Uh, So that's the big issues for next week. But as I say, for most regular people, they ain't going to notice any difference. Tony? Yeah, so uh, as I said, the European Commission is going to adopt the the draft mandate uh, on Monday. Um, That's kind of unusual because the the College of Commissioners don't normally have their big meeting until the Wednesday. But there you go. They're going to have that decision on Monday. um, And then the scoping will begin between both sides as the the ground rules for these negotiations, where they'll take place and so on. Um, We'll be keeping an eye out next week because there's a couple of big trade experts events in Brussels. The Centre for European Reform is having uh, an event with Phil Hogan and a lot of other uh, of the cottage industry of trade experts who have been flourishing uh, due to Brexit. Um, uh, And there will be other events of that nature next week. So we'll be able to bring you some of the material from that for next week's podcast. And of course, just to reassure listeners that we ain't going away. Brexit Republic will continue, even though Brexit Day is upon us. Uh, We will still be hammering down your doors and transistor radios and internet yokes uh, to bring you all the latest on Brexit, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Indeed, and and who says there's no such thing as a job for life, uh, Tony? Uh, But some people who don't have a job for life, of course, we should just mention it uh, in passing, as they're passing is today. Uh, That's DEXEU, the Department for Exiting the European Union. Uh, That is being disbanded uh, at uh, 11 o'clock tonight. They're basically all gone already, but it means uh, Steve Barclay and Martin Callanan uh, are two ministers who uh, actually don't have any uh, jobs or ministries uh, at the moment. So that's one actual uh, change that has happened here in the United Kingdom. A government department disappears uh, and two ministers are out of their jobs. Uh, I don't think there'll be uh, mass tears uh, amongst the people of Britain for that, but it just does mean one more indicator that, yep, today is the day that Britain actually leaves the European Union. All right, well, that's it for me, Colm O'Mungo, and RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And for me, Sean Whelan, our correspondent in London. And for me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor here in Brussels. Thanks, as always, for listening.